Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In a survey of academic philosophers, 85% identified as atheists. In Europe, established religion has been in decline for a century, and even in the United States, attendance is falling. Yet globally, religion remains a potent force, and predictions of its demise have not really materialized. Amongst those who have abandoned established religion, New forms of spirituality, such as mindfulness and yoga, are on the rise. So does religion, in all its many forms, provide a psychological support for humans that makes it essential, without which there is only the void? Joining us to debate these questions are scientist, author and biologist Rupert Sheldrake, Hegelian psychoanalyst Slavoj Žižek, and professor of history at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, Jennifer Ratner-Rosenhagen. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Wes Alwyn. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fantasy and the Void. I'm Wes Alwyn, co-host of the Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast. Is there something about being that is ineffable and which can never be eradicated? Or is the persistence of religion an extended but ultimately temporary phenomenon that will be replaced by the success of science? Today, we are joined by Rupert Sheldrake, who is a scientist, author, and parapsychology researcher, best known for his 2012 book, The Science Delusion, and controversial viral TED Talk, he gave, which was later banned by the organization. Slavoj Žižek is a Hegelian psychoanalyst and arguably the leading celebrity philosopher of our times. <laughs> Idiosyncratic and fiercely polemical, Slavoj is currently serving as international director of the Burbeck Institute for the Humanities. And Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen is professor of, the hist- professor of history at the University of Madison, Wisconsin known for her work on Nietzsche and the transatlantic flow of intellectual movements. Her books include American Nietzsche and The Ideas That Made America, which was first published in 2019. We'll start with a question for which each speaker has three minutes to present their thoughts before we move into the body of the debate. That question is, is the persistence of religion a temporary phenomenon that will eventually be replaced by science? Okay, let's begin with uh, Rupert. Well, what makes religions different from mechanistic materialism, which is the usual belief system underlying atheism, there are many kinds of atheism, but the common or garden atheists, the kind of Richard Dawkins type atheists, are usually mechanistic materialists. 
What makes all religions different is the belief that there are forms of consciousness that are higher than or more inclusive than human consciousness, that our consciousness is not the only kind there is. I mean, most materialists would admit that some animals are conscious too, but otherwise they see the entire universe as made up of unconscious matter. And then consciousness somehow emerges in a very mysterious way inside material brains when they get big enough and uh, the light bulb of consciousness goes on, but consciousness doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't give us free will. It's nothing but the activity of our brains. That's the standard mechanistic materialist view. And of course, when we die, then the brain decays and all consciousness comes to an end. That worldview uh, leads to the idea that God, gods, spirits, angels, etc., are nothing but fantasies inside human minds and therefore inside human brains. But this is just an assumption about the nature of consciousness. And in fact, mechanistic materialism is extremely bad at explaining consciousness. Uh, the very existence of consciousness is an embarrassment, which is why it's called the hard problem in the philosophy of mind. So it's not as if mechanistic materialism has a brilliant theory of consciousness that explains it all. It doesn't have a theory at all, except to say it's nothing but brain activity. On the other hand, when scientists actually look at the effects of religious and spiritual practices rather than approaching it in an ideological spirit, then it turns out that religious and spiritual practices have measurable effects. There have now been thousands of studies of the effects of spiritual and religious practices published in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, many of them are summarized in this, the Handbook of Religion and Health in two thick volumes. And basically, the result of this research shows that those who have spiritual and religious practices tend to be happier, healthier, and live longer than those that don't. In other words, it presumably means that those who don't have religious and spiritual practices are unhappier, unhealthier, and live shorter than those that do. And what you would expect on this basis in a secular society where many people have lost touch with traditional religions is that they on the whole get depressed and of course depression is the endemic problem in industrial secular societies. Millions and millions of people are on antidepressants. So presumably this lack of religious and spiritual practice is bad for health and that's why I think militant atheism should come with a health warning because insofar as it puts people off their traditional religion and, and religious practices and leaves very little in their stead except a belief in science, then it's likely to harm people. Spiritual practices are not going away. On the contrary, they're increasing in their reach and in the number of people taking them up. So for me, the question is not about the value of spiritual practices. The question is whether spiritual practices will reconnect with religious traditions from which they originally came, whether religions will adopt more spiritual practices, because primarily it's about practice, not about belief, or whether we'll have large numbers of people who are spiritual but not religious, whose practices float in a kind of secular void, unrooted in, in religious traditions. Slavoj, is the persistence of religion a temporary phenomenon that will eventually be replaced by science? I have here a rather paradoxical opinion. Uh, no, it's not a temporary position. I think it's in the 
although I consider myself an atheist, I think there is something in the structure of human life, human mind, the way we relate to reality and so on, that as to refer to your title, that opens up, implies the void, which then is filled in by religion, but not to get lost in this. Uh, I would just like to quickly describe a couple of points which complicate this simple opposition. First, as uh, you, Rupert, nicely deployed, yes, I would go even a step further. The usual idea of materialism is small, somewhere in empty space, there are just small bits of matter, and they somehow chaotically mix, and everything comes out of that. My type of materialism would have been, I called it that, materialism without matter. I take the lesson of, as far as I'm able to understand them, of quantum physics and so on, and I claim we should not get fixed on a certain figure of matter, this mechanistic idea, you know, like little billiard balls, whatever, encountering each other. Uh, reality can be totally abstract. It can be immaterial waves, whatever we call it. What makes it atheist for me, and this is the crucial point, is that it's not run by an overreaching intelligence or whatever, that it's basically blind, a blind process, not mechanist. It's a blind process, but for me, so-called reality, we can debate what it is, is, as I often develop, open, ontologically non-constituted. That's why I totally oppose those readings of quantum physics, which see a kind of hidden idealism in it, you know. Ah, the role of observation, this means that uh, reality is somehow constituted through our guests. No, Niels Bohr, Ritchie, was to the end uh, not uh, a religious guy. But again, this idea of, I think, changes enough, this idea of reality as ontologically incomplete, with gaps even in itself, incomplete universe, and at the same time, very important, the growing, exploding gap between what science presents us as reality and our ordinary, everyday experience of reality. Look at classic Greek thought, Aristotle. He basically constructs an ontology out of our ordinary daily experience of reality. You know, heavy objects fall down, up, the sky, and so on. But already with Galileo, this image becomes counterintuitive, then Einstein, then quantum physics. Yes, it is. I will wrap up. So that's the first thing. So this is the problem that I have, even with some people like Hawking, whose thesis is the time of philosophy is over. Science took, science is now replacing it. Not only religion, but even philosophy. Science is taking it over. How? It's true. It's very interesting observation. In the last decades, we were trained to even look for the solution of one's metaphysical question in science. If you are today interested, is our world finite or infinite? We look into quantum cosmology, not to metaphysics. If you want to know we have a free will or not, you ask cognitive scientists and so on and so on. But I think that there is a dimension of reflexive thinking 
which remains a domain of philosophy, I'm more of a philosopher here, and which for structural reasons cannot be covered up by science. And point two, on this I would especially like to insist, we should be very careful about what do we mean by belief. Today we have not only beliefs which we publicly profess but secretly don't take seriously, we also have things that we publicly mock but we act as if we believe in them. To conclude one line, literally, don't be mad at me, with my favorite, you must know it, most of you, joke idea attributed to Niels Bohr. You know, a friend of him saw at the entrance to his house uh, a horseshoe, superstitious item uh, uh, pre preventing evil spirits to enter house. And the friend asked him, okay, but you are an atheist scientist, why do you have that about the entrance to your house? Bohr answered, I know, I don't believe in it, I'm a scientist, but I was told it works even if you don't believe in it. That's our attitude today. I stop, I'm very sorry. Thank you, Slavoj. Jennifer, now your, your turn. Is the persistence of religion a temporary phenomenon that will eventually be replaced by science? So I'm not a philosopher, but I spend enough time with them to know that they have a pesky habit of asking you to define your terms before they're willing to engage, usually, although we have two philosophers here willing to have a conversation. I mention this because there are two terms here, science and religion, which actually are pretty imprecise. But here, I don't have to be a philosopher. I can be a historian and say that they're also historically contingent. So the terms that I think we're going to be using today, although maybe my colleagues will surprise me, are terms that actually are really have a vintage from the 19th century. And in the long span of human history, that means that they're pretty much, these terms are in their infancy. I mention that just because there's, it's, it's important to know what we're talking about, where there's overlap, where there's porosity between what we're calling science, what we're calling religion. It may do well to find other terms to have this conversation. So for example, maybe idealism or rationalism versus empiricism might get us a little closer to whatever the epistemological or moral issues are at stake here. Okay, but these are the terms I'm given and I will be a good guest and work with them. So will science replace religion? Again, I'm a historian here and we're not really good at prognosticating, but if I look at history as any indicator, the answer is no. And that is because if you look at, I think there are two ways to come at this. One is from a scientific perspective and another one, a religious perspective. So let's take a scientific perspective. If you look at the long history of science, whether it's materialism, empiricism, naturalism, whatever ism, take your pick. It's often historically been used to actually credentialize what we might call religious practices or religious belief. That is to say, there's a long and vibrant history of showing how science has been used to show the efficacy of religion in one form or another. If we take just the last hundred years, you can look at psychology, you can look at neuroscience, you can look at physics and see examples of this sort of dialectic and credentializing. I'll just drop a few names here that might be interesting for the audience and hopefully familiar to some. The first name that comes to mind is William James, the famous American pragmatist, one of the main figures who brings psychology to America. And James was, as he called himself, a radical empiricist 
physicist. So he wanted to use science, but he wanted to use it as a way to, as he put it, widen the field for the search of God. That is to say, what James was seeking was a kind of rapprochement between these warring ways of knowing between science and religion. And James is very important then in showing the efficacy of what he called religious experience. Or you can even look at the 1970s. And I know Slavoj made a comment about, you know, not liking the, the sort of wooey idealism behind some quantum physics. But that's just an example where some of the early figures in quantum physics, or at least in the 70s, who helped to really bring it some prominence, were themselves deeply engaged in and influenced by Eastern mysticism. And so in a sense, their engagement with Eastern mysticism gave them a new set of eyes to see the possibilities in quantum physics. And in turn, they use quantum physics to show the efficacy of some of these Eastern philosophies. Let me, if I may, just tuck in one more thing. We can then come at it from, a, if you will, a religious perspective. Again, take a historical perspective. And what you see is that religion evolves. Religion is very, very adaptable. And by that, I mean all of the world's religions. You can throw new facts at it, you can throw science, you can throw whatever. And religious traditions have the positive genius for either somehow working with enlisting these new ideas and incorporating them into their worldview or just dodging them. And this is, again, an insight that James had from his perspective on religion. He said, ultimately, human beings are pretty conservative. They have a stock of, of beliefs. And when a new idea comes, they try to get that new information to jibe with their belief. And when it doesn't jibe, the conservative temperament, as he calls it, our passional nature wins out. And so in that regard, religion, there's a persistence with religion, partly by way also of accommodation, evolution, and transvaluation of what comes its way. So that is simply to say, though, I'm, I, again, I, I, I would never trust a historian to prognosticate. I think history tells us that one, there's, we're not likely to see anytime soon the usurping of one, the authority of one for the other. Thank you, Jennifer. Our first theme is, so, in 2002, Stephen Hawking's book, The Theory of Everything, was published, the title suggesting that the scientific method is so powerful that it has omniscient potential. The first question of the debate is, can science, in principle, describe everything? Slavoj, we'll start with you, and then this is a free-for-all. People can, can jump in and have a free exchange. Again, we have to be very specific. Science, we mean the modern science. First, Galileo and so on, physics, that model, and then we know what happened in the 20th century. But then let's go to the end. What interests me are those mixed phenomena, like, did you hear about neurotheology? The idea which I think will ultimately fail, artificially through simple intervention into our brain arouse generate religious experiences. Of course, this is a limited procedure, but it nonetheless interests me what remains after this of traditional religion. Second thing, precisely this plasticity, adaptability of religious experiences, how we can adapt, incorporate nutrients and so on, is for me rather a sign of its insufficiency. Like, sorry, but 
all religions cannot be true if you take them seriously. And doesn't this adaptability rather not signal in the sense that there is some basic propensity towards religious experience? I admit this. It's very difficult to be a consequent atheist. I would even go, that was the point of my Niels Bohr example, to say that most people, even atheists, at some practical level, they, they are religious. Even Stalinism, not in the sense that Stalin was like God and so on. But you know, when Stalinists speak about objective necessity, responsibility in the view of the loss of history and so on, they presuppose a figure of the big other where, if I may be to show, the ultimate meaning of everything we do will be finally recognized. So you presuppose a kind of divine perspective, the meaning, the meaning sorry, of everything will be settled. But uh, you know, that's my paradoxical relationship towards religion, although I'm an atheist. You know where, for me, religion is at its most interesting? When precisely it tries to adapt to science, but leads to apparently crazy results. My, Probably you, most of you know this story, which is, again, absolutely my favorite one, about how a friend of Darwin, some British bishop, whatever, who was literal, fundamentalist Christian believer, had a problem. He saw that Darwin is onto something serious. But the Bible tells him, he was literal here, that our universe was created a little bit over 4,000 years ago. So how to combine this with implications of Darwinism. You, I hope you know what his solution was, the best theory of ideology that I know. His solution was that, of course, God cannot lie, he did create our world 4,000 and something years ago, but he directly created fossils like creating reality in a movie studio to give us a wrong impression of openness. I think that is the best definition of ideology, this false openness, creating your own past. Can science, in principle, describe everything? I think this is the standard, not religious, but even modern European transcendental philosophical argument. It cannot, because it lacks this philosophical reflexivity, which shows you the conditions of your own scientific activity. I'm not a Habermasian, but here Habermas made a good point where he said, yes, we can provide a perfect naturalist description of a human being, but we are doing this as members of scientific community following a certain procedure, a certain understanding of being. I agree with your point about mechanist materialism, and this was not simply the result of studying reality. It can be clearly shown that this mechanist aspect was an a priori that this materialist of the 18th century brought into reality. So this type of reflection, which shows how scientific reasoning itself, it may try to explain everything, but in some sense it's unable to fully account for itself. Something, a certain scientific approach to reality and so on, must already be here. And you always already presuppose it. 
this circularity, I think, escapes science itself, at least in the sense of modern science. The limitations of materialism are fairly clear when it comes to consciousness, but it's also run into great problems in cosmology and physics. As most people know, many cosmologists now think we live in a multiverse with billions, trillions of other unobserved universes, not a shred of evidence for them. 95% of reality is dark matter and dark energy. We haven't got a clue what they are. They've been invented to shore up the equations of physics so the cosmology works. But by titrating in as much dark matter as convenient to make the equations balance, and superstring and M-theory with 10 and 11 dimensions are untestable. They predict the existence of at least 10 to the 500 other realities or universes. So physics is a mess, and many people feel that theoretical physics is stuck. I think it's stuck. But meanwhile, the problem of consciousness and consciousness studies is the most glaring limitation of materialist science. And I think that's what's so interesting is that in response to the hard problem, many philosophers of mind, even if they're atheists and materialists, are now becoming panpsychists. There's been a panpsychist turn in philosophy, saying there's some kind of consciousness even in atoms and molecules. And if you take that seriously, as I do myself, then you have to ask, well, what about the consciousness of the sun? I recently published a paper in the Journal of Consciousness Studies called, Is the Sun Conscious? I answer yes probably. And what about the consciousness of the galaxy, of the universe? And if we get to the consciousness of the universe, then how does that differ from pantheism? And if we get to pantheism, how's that very different from various forms of panentheisms? We get into a realm of theological discussion. So I feel that materialist science is certainly very, very limited, and its limitations are obvious. I think science is likely to expand to become much more panpsychist, and I think there are other principles in science which are likely to be expanded, including our view of the mind, allowing it to escape from the confines of the brain. So science can expand a lot further than it has done now. It's held back by materialist dogma. But even so, I think it will still be incomplete because it will still presuppose ourselves, our minds, our own abilities to understand the universe, uh, which it won't explain because the mind that's doing the understanding can't very easily explain itself since it's presupposed. So I think there will always be limitations, but I think right now it's more limited than it needs to be. So I'll hop in here in response to the question whether science in principle could describe everything and maybe just add this. I guess, well, one is that it hasn't so far. Most reputable scientists that I'm aware of, I mean, this is uh, the, the Dawkins quote actually sort of takes me by surprise, don't think that it can, have no expectation that in, in any time soon it will be able to. But I think the maybe more pressing or, for me, more interesting question is, would we even want it to? And here, I must say, I have a little anecdote from Richard Rorty, who's American philosopher, who, who has this wonderful little scenario that he has in a piece that he wrote in the mid-'80s called Science of Solidarity. And he's being very cheeky and, I think, quite funny. And here he's talking about philosophers, but we could say the same thing about scientists. So let me just do this Rortian move. He invites us to imagine a scenario where the greatest scientists all over the world are convened together to come up with the truth about the entirety of the world. 
Yeah, they're going to describe everything. And they have maybe days long conversation. And then they all agree. They can agree that values are objective, that science is rational, that truth corresponds to reality. And lo and behold, they can describe the whole universe for us. And they're just going to put it together and hand it out, you know, pass it out in due course. Rorty asked the question, would, would people say, yay, we've been saved? The scientists are going to answer everything for us. Or would we recoil in horror, not only at their hubris, but also at the utter absurdity of that claim? And Rorty proposes, or su supposes, as do I, that I think I would hope that many, that th those of us sitting around the Zoom room or listening in would be like the latter. So why would that even be something desirable? Because again, science is something that human beings do. So what you're really saying is you're going to hand it over to a group of human beings to then adjudicate what the absolute truths of our world are. And I think that would be boring, at least, and terrifying at, at worst. So that's my thought on that, that question. Okay. I, I'm going to move us on to the, the next theme of the debate. The next theme is why does religion remain so popular? So Nietzsche declared the death of God 140 years ago. The majority of the world's population seems not to have gotten the memo. Jennifer, we will start with you again. Why does religion remain so popular today? Well, I'm glad you mentioned Nietzsche because uh, he's always he's always on my mind. He's never far away from my internal conversation. So the memo that Nietzsche gave was, of course, the madman parable. And for those in the audience who don't know this, it's in 1882, the gay science, Nietzsche introduces his famous madman parable where the madman comes running into the town square and he says, God is dead, God is dead. We have killed him, you and I. We have his blood stains on our clothes. We have his blood stains on our hands. And he's greeted with indifference, snickering. And he realizes that he's come too soon, yeah? His time has not yet come. So when Nietzsche introduces the God is dead, his point in that, and it, it stays, it's something that develops even in his philosophy as he moves forward, is that people will continue to pray to a God they don't believe in because they will cling to the moral certainties that religion provides, the existential consolations, and so science is not gonna going to just give a final blow to religion. I get so anyways, if I may just follow up, I just think that the same remains true today. That we have all sorts of truths that want to undermine religious faith, but God is not yet dead, um, as we can see with billions of people across the planet. And I think we'll still be quoting <laughs> Nietzsche's parable for, for many, many decades to come. You know, another hypothesis that often intrigued me. Why do we always associate religion with being maybe happy? Yes, but being good. I think a colleague of mine, okay, Slovenia is as President Trump would have put it as shit call of the country, small, but a sociologist made here something that the Catholic Church was horrified at. He on a quite representative sample, he tried to compare the, however it was able to be measured, family violence and so on, 
the religious nature belief of people with the ethical standards they pursued in their lives. And his conclusion was anonymous. On average, atheists are better morally than religious people. I'm not saying now, I define myself also, some of you may know as Christian atheists and so on and so on, but you know, if there is a lesson, especially from the past and so on, is that God, in the sense of what motivates us when we refer to religion, can also be evil in the sense of justifying even imposing evil acts and so on. Who is the cosmologist who wrote a, a book called, not Weinberger, who wrote The Three First Seconds? I think he said something wonderful. You will be shocked. He said, without religion, good people would be good and bad people would be bad. But you need something like religion to make basically good people do bad, horrible things. I don't, I'm not saying this is the ultimate truth of religion, but there also is an aspect of this. First, when we talk about meditation, Buddhism, and so on, please don't forget that Buddha, the original guy, is not an atheist, at least an agnostic. He explicitly says, God, blah, blah, it doesn't concern me. Secondly, just very quickly, my last point, when we talk about, yes, effectiveness of religion and all that, but nonetheless, you know, I agree with you, it cannot explain everything science, and incidentally, good scientists usually know this. You already indicated a key difference between true science and scientism. And I don't know if you agree or not, but I would have put somebody like Dawkins more on the side of scientism. Like I spoke with many very serious cognitivists who told me he's more, as they put it in Nazi Germany, propaganda abteilung, you know, for science. He's not doing the real thing. But nonetheless, look, my God, modern science did terrible, terribly important things. So I nonetheless want to oppose to this new postmodern historicist way of, oh, science is just another discourse. It has a notion of truth which is limited to it and so on and so on. Rupert, before you respond, I just, I'd like you to bridge us into our next theme as well. So will the next generation be more or less religious than ourselves, just because we're running out of time? I think religions ultimately are based on direct experience, what you could call mystical experiences. Many people have them spontaneously in nature. Some people have them through near-death experiences. Some people have them through psychedelic experiences. Some people have them as a result of the deliberate practice of spiritual practices like meditation or prayer or fasting or other practices. There are many spiritual practices. And this sense of the connection of our consciousness with a vastly greater consciousness is not a theory for people who've had this experience, it's an experience. I've had such experiences myself. Um, I'm a practicing Christian, and one reason I am is that I've actually had direct experiences that make the idea of a consciousness beyond our own, not just a theory, a proposition in theology, but an, ex an actual experience I've had, which for me was very convincing. Now, 
I know that atheists and materialists will say, well, this is just uh, the release of dopamine in the brain or something like that, or yeah. short-circuiting various bits of the brain, and that it's all inside the head. But the fact is, when you have these experiences, you're working on the basis of experience. I mean, science is supposed to be empirical, which means experience. This is experience. And to oppose it, you don't oppose it with materialist science, with experience, you oppose it with ideology. The ideology that the mind is nothing but the brain. Now, I think that the limitations of that ideology are very clear to anyone who's had mystical experiences. And increasing numbers of people are having them, partly because of the spread of psychedelics, which for many people are a kind of rite of passage into a larger view of consciousness. They certainly were for me when I first took psychedelics in 1971 or something like that. Before that, I was an atheist, a standard materialist atheist. It went with my scientific education. And they helped open my mind to new possibilities. And I later took up meditation and yoga because I wanted to explore the realm of consciousness without drugs. I mean, not against drugs, but I'm not saying they're necessary, but for many people they're an opening, a, 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 an opening to this realm of experience. Given that human beings have had these experiences over millennia, given that they underlie the enlightenment of the Buddha, it was a direct experience. Jesus's experience of his own closeness to God was not as a result of doing a PhD or going to a rabbinical seminary. It was a direct experience. And these kinds of experiences are not going to go away. And for those who've had them, they're extremely meaningful. They're more meaningful than reading books on popular science or people trying to explain away near-death experiences in terms of anoxia in the brain and that kind of thing. And I think that they're likely, therefore, to lead to a persistent interest in spiritual practices and that these spiritual practices are likely to lead to a resurgence of connection with religious traditions because if they're just free-floating they're not rooted in a tradition and they're not rooted in a community and we religions provide many things for people but they also they provide a sense of interconnection in community with other people in a way that fragmented individualism doesn't so my own view is that it's very likely that religions will evolve, as Jennifer put. It was wonderful the way she described this evolutionary process. I think they'll continue to evolve. They are evolving before our very eyes at the moment, and that many people will find them of value. So that's my answer to the third question. Sounds like Rupert was saying part of the enduring popularity of religion is due to the fact that we need something we need something more not to be fragmented individuals and the question is does that thing need to be religion are there other practices other forms of life that could do that or is there something specifically about religion that you know, that only religion can meet that need and then the question is what counts as religion I think what I would say is I think I I definitely heard in Rupert and I'm pretty sure I heard in Slavoj say I don't want to put words in your mouth but something to the extent that that the the longing for or the drive towards religious experience is from their view something that is deeply human and I would just say unfortunately in this regard this debate's going to be very boring because I will not disagree with them <laughs> that's the point that I would make and it's called many many different things 
Jung called it the religious instinct. Viktor Frankl called it, you know, man's search for meaning. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it beautiful necessity. We could go on and on. But this craving for something that I do think is peculiar to something that we might call religion, and it goes beyond theology, it goes beyond epistemology or, or truth claims, and, and this, is, this is to pick up on Rupert, it goes beyond institutions, it goes to the question of certain kinds of experiences, feelings, environments, mystical experiences, a sense of wonder and awe, and I think that this is something that we see time and time again, that no matter how much materialism wants to explain it away, or, um, or at least it, it does explain it, but that, it, that, that it's there, what form will that take? We'll have to see. I think what we do know about this next generation is that there are many, at least the educated ones, are keenly aware of living in something that we call the Anthropocene. They also know that they've inherited from their parents and their grandparents, you know, that they're living on borrowed time. And so I think all of these questions are going to take a particular kind of urgency now for the next generation. And I don't think either something we call science or religion is going to be enough for them to, as Nietzsche put it, shoot arrows of longing over this abyss. I think they're going to borrow from both. But I think that, 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 that yearning, that longing, that something that Jung calls a religious instinct is something that is absolutely deeply human. And it may take different forms, but I don't think it's going to go away. And Slavoj, I hand it over to you now. Okay, but you can take it from me when you want to. Okay. <laughs> Very briefly, first, my reply to that idea that religions are based on an extra intense, deep, no irony intended here, direct experience. But correct me if I'm wrong. I read some texts by, as already mentioned it, I think by so-called neurotheologists who claim that, and I read then theologists' responses to them. Neurotheologists claim that by doing, don't ask me what, certain things to your brain, they can trigger something that you experience precisely as this intense religious experience. And it's interesting, what is the theologist's answer to them? Because here, this seems like a good proof, you know, nothing to do with your inner life. I do it to you in a certain way, and you will have that type of experience. But all the experiences that you, and I loved your presentations, Rupert, that you mentioned, you know, like Buddha's enlightenment, where I'm sorry, Buddha's enlightenment for original Buddhism itself was not in any sense a religious experience. It was simply an experience of true nature, of reality, of the ultimate void, and so on and so on. Christian experience. My God, I'm fascinated by it, but for me, and I agree here with ultra-theologists like my beloved 20th century, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, Christ's basic experience is that, Father, Father, why have you abandoned me? Which is precisely an incredible, intense experience of the separation from God, which is the way I see it unique, I can argue about this later, unique for Christianity. So I would nonetheless go a little bit further in this direction that our, our religious experience, no matter how intensely personal is, it is its historically formed. I can go on, for example, uh, 
how do you call it, uh, John of the Cross and Teresa Avila, the two big medieval mystics. They are describing a very different, a very different experience. So I would go more in this direction. And just to finish, yes, the limit of science is a certain abyss, this experience of even what I call incompleteness of reality. But you see, my point is not that materialists come and accounts for it. I think that this shattering experience of, let's call it primordial void, what Buddha experienced, this is for me the zero level of materialism. This, you want materialism, don't look to mechanistic scientists, look to Buddha. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.